today we're going to go ahead and we're going to continue uh, the second part of our three-part series that we began last week called Hope Remains. And what we're doing is, is we're diving into the book of Zephaniah, uh, this very small three-chapter book found in the Old Testament. Uh, and we're diving in a little deeper to hopefully find some insights and uh, maybe a little bit of a different perspective in relationship to uh, the times that we live in now. And if you haven't had the chance, I challenge you guys or encourage you last week uh, to actually take the time to even just read through this short three-chapter book. I encourage you to do that. Uh, even though we are going to be going through this together, uh, it doesn't hurt to go through and to be uh, putting the bigger picture in mind and to question and to wrestle a little bit about what uh, the book of Zephaniah talks about. So I want to encourage you, if you have yet to do so, uh, to take the chance today to maybe this afternoon, just open up your Bible and just read through uh, the book of Zephaniah and see uh, what you find. Read it once, read it twice, read it three times, four times, uh, read it uh, after you eat breakfast or lunch or dinner, uh, read it after, uh, whenever. Uh, take the time to read Zephaniah and I promise you that it'll be a blessing. Now, last week, we began talking a bit about the background um, of our prophet Zephaniah and how, very interestingly, uh, compared to all the other prophetic books or the prophet books that we find in the Old Testament, Zephaniah is the only one that has this uh, interesting lineage where he's related to one of the kings of Judah, which was King Hezekiah, who was the 13th king of Judah uh, and was known to be one of the good kings, one of the kings that restored temple worship and uh, got rid of idol worship and really tried putting the country in the right path. We also talked about uh, and summarized by reading the first chapter and three verses of the second chapter, uh, the sins of Judah. And those three sins that we talked about were idolatry, polytheism, and an indifference towards God. Now, we also spent most of the time talking about this idea called the Day of the Lord. And this is a theme that we find in not only Zephaniah, but in other books of the Bible as well, especially in the book of Revelation and in some of the other prophet books of the Old Testament. Uh, and we talked about how this is perceived as kind of this scary time, this scary day, uh, and we discovered last week, when you look at the origins of this day, the reality is, is it's actually a day of celebration. That originally, the day of the Lord was a day in which they celebrated because it was a day that reminded them of the victory uh, and uh, the power of God and His redeeming of His people. But we concluded that it's so important. Uh, to understand that the day of the Lord is yet a joyful day, still a joyful day. But as we can see in the prophets and in the book of Revelation, the, joy of the, or the, the day of the Lord is still a joyful day only when we are aligned with God and His will. And that's something that we can all look forward to. And that's something that we should all strive for as we live our lives. Last week, I left you guys with the challenge to take time to reflect and to see where you stand with God. And as Zephaniah challenged us in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld uh, His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you uh, will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So, did you follow through with that by any chance? I want to challenge you guys, if you have not, to take the opportunity to do so. And if it's this, this Sabbath or later this week, I challenge you, church, uh, to do it. 
Now, today we're going to continue this journey through this small book, and we're going to look at the remainder of chapter two. Uh, and I want to pull out two key lessons and a little bit of details beneath uh, each of those topics uh, for the rest of uh, today's message. But I want to remind you, uh, I think it's very important that we keep the big picture in mind, especially when we're talking about this chapter where it can seem very... Um, not, not very clear or just like, what, what, what lessons can we pull from this? Uh, let me remind you of what the big picture is of this series. Uh, so you have a better under uh, or a better idea of uh, why we talk about these things. Okay. So first of all, God, God is faithful to his promises for better or for worse. And we're going to discover that Judah, uh, and as we've seen in history, has been unfaithful to their covenant with God. And Zephaniah was a prophet that God was using to warn Judah of an upcoming judgment. And the judgment would be fatal unless Judah uh, repented and turned back to the Lord. And beyond the immediate historical context that we find in the book of Judah, uh, the promise to the nations provides a picture of the character of God that we can see time and time again throughout scripture. And even more importantly, we're going to find that this message that we find in Zephaniah and uh, of judgment and restoration and ultimately of hope uh, is even more relevant to us in a time like now. And so if we keep this in the picture or in the big picture, um, uh, this chapter will make a little bit more sense. Now, let's actually begin. Uh, I want to begin by just reading through this uh, instead of a breakdown of the verses. Let's just go ahead and read through this and I'm going to pull out two lessons from it. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4 to 15. Now, before we start reading, and as you're pulling out your Bibles and looking for the small book of Zephaniah, uh, Zephaniah chapter 2, 4 to 15 uh, can seem to be very uh, dark and maybe a little discouraging. Um, and like I said, there may be some things that you look at and be like, okay, how, what, what kind of lessons can we get from this message? And so just bear with me uh, and trust me uh, that there will be good that comes out of this. So uh, I'm going to actually be reading. Last week I read from the New International Version uh, and I realized that I actually uh, am starting to come in like the New King James Version much more these days. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, I think I'm going through these phases. Um, but we're going to read through the New, uh, New King James Version today. And this is what it says, Zephaniah 2, 4 to 15. And it says, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out uh, Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cher Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitant. Verse 6, The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the house of Ashkelon, they shall lay down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon, which... With which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Verse 9 Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. 
Verse 10, this they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them. He will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, and eat all the shores of the nations. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. And he will, out, he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. The herd shall lie down in her mist. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the burden, shall... Lodge on the capitals of her pillars, their voice shall sing in the windows, desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is nothing is none beside me. How she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Now, okay, so I, uh, I, some of this may have gone over your guys' head. Um, some of this may be very dark and just kind of a little creepy and just like, oh, like this is an argument that God is always angry. Uh, and we've talked about this before, but that's not the case. And we'll talk a little bit more today about it. Uh, but first and foremost, hopefully you guys noticed um, that the tone of God's wrath and God's judgment is the same as what we talked about last week. Clearly, God is unhappy. God is very upset. There are sins. There are things that are going on that are not pleasing to the Lord. Um, but in last week, uh, last week's message, in our last chapter, we find that God, working through the prophet Zephaniah, he's sending a very strong message to the people of Judah that God isn't happy. Right? The day of the Lord is going to be coming. It's going to be a scary day if people don't turn from their ways. Uh, but we have to remember that in last week's message, God leaves us with hope. There is a, still a glimmer of hope, which is the beginning of chapter 2. Right? And we, we can attain this hope and this, this joyful celebration as long as we seek the Lord. Right? Seek what is right, what is humble. And that's the key in understanding God's character. So, uh, because if we don't, then we begin to paint a very ugly picture, right? So remember that God, yes, is upset and not very happy, but God still leaves a message of hope, right, uh, to the people of Judah. Now we find ourselves continuing, or Zephaniah continuing this message from God, and instead of the, the anger and the tone of punishment and judgment, instead of it being towards Judah, the people of Judah, now it's being to turned towards the neighbors of Judah, right? So, God is taking, uh, taking this from the east to the west, to the north to the south. He's talking about Gaza, uh, Ashkelon, uh, Ashdod, Ekron, nation after nation. God is relentless in this sense of that his judgment is not only for the nation of Judah, but God's judgment is also for the people around Judah, right? Judah's neighbors. And this is interesting. Uh, but next week, uh, we're going to go into more depth about this. But I want to kind of entertain and tickle the thought today. First of all, when we look at God's anger uh, and God's judgment, um, or well, when we look at God's judgment, we don't necessarily think about, uh, or we shouldn't, and we've hopefully if I've uh, made myself clear, that God's judgment at any point is not necessarily out of anger. Um, we don't serve a God that's like hungry to satisfy his need of of bloodshed or um, of, of to satisfy his frustrations. We're not talking about, we're not worshiping a God who is some abusive figure uh, that is trying to make our lives all miserable. 
And I hope uh, from my previous series, my last sermon, and hopefully the message that I've been able to uh, bring to you week by week uh, shows that, or hopefully you understand that God is not a God uh, that is like that. We're not serving a God that is is just angry all the time and, and we have to tiptoe around Him. Um, but we understand that God's judgment is actually an expression of God's love, right? In the sense that judgment and God's love is the, uh, the two sides of the same coin, right? And God sees us as His very own, right? We see throughout Scripture that God sees us as His very own, so He's willing to lay down His life for us, right? And so the purpose of God's judgment is so that He can lead us to what is right. Right? And this is where it gets more interesting, and this is the catch. Okay? When we look at the biblical narrative, when we look throughout the Bible, we find a lot of the times that God's judgment is rendered and given to His people. Right? But then we also find, just as we've just read here in Zephaniah chapter 2, that God's judgment is not only rendered to people of His own, but to people, uh, so, to, so, so to say, like outside of His own. Right? To other non-believing nations. And I think there's a lot of power to that. And I don't know, you know, if you don't get it, then that's fine. If it goes over your head, that's fine. But that's something to really think about. That God's judgment is not just towards His own people, but God's judgment is towards the neighboring people, right? People that worship other gods and don't believe in Him, right? Uh, And we're going to save that. Uh, for next week, uh, we'll dive into more depth with that. But if, you, if you've already caught on to that, uh, there's something very powerful that describes God's character and nature. But anyways, I want to talk about two different topics um, and two different thoughts from our reading today that I had while I was studying. And the first one uh, that kind of popped into my mind was found in verse 9. And let's just read verse 9 one more time and then I'll, let me emphasize what I want to focus on. It says, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So I want to focus only on this one word. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about the context as well of this verse. Uh, But there's a very powerful theme that we find when it comes to this idea of the remnant. So in Zephaniah, we see it happening. In other books of the prophet, we also see this theme of the remnant being introduced. Now, uh, to be honest with you, uh, a lot of scholarship, not just me, but a lot of scholarship and biblical um, scholarship, uh, theologians and whatnot, they find this verse in particular to be a little confusing, right? Some trains of thoughts uh, go along the lines of, okay, so it says here in the Bible that like God is going to uh, take uh, the residue or the residue of his people will plunder them, okay, turn them into Sodom and Gomorrah. And we already know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, this very sinful, wicked city was destroyed by fire and like just became like salt pits, right? Um, and it was just desolation, boom, gone, right? And then it says that the remnant is now going to possess them. Like, and, and the big question is, is why would the remnant want the ruins of a city? Why would the remnant need this? Why would God, like, what's the purpose of that? What's the whole point? Um, and now there's a lot of debate to this. And uh, I don't think today I'll be able to give you a very clear answer of why God would say such a thing. Uh, But there's a few insights that I want to 
talk about when it comes to the remnant that may give you a better understanding of, first of all, remnant uh, in this context, but also just how God uh, uses uh, the remnant. And hopefully this could give you a little bit more understanding and maybe a little bit of a takeaway, uh, even if uh, this is still confusing. And like I said, this is confusing for me. Uh, this is still confusing for uh, even biblical scholarship. So people that have their PhDs and whatnot. So um, uh, understand me. But first of all, when we think of remnant, uh, I think in Adventist theology, especially, uh, and especially in our own church circles as well, it's a very common theme and term that we use. It's not really uh, foreign or unknown uh, to us in the Adventist church. Um, and in Adventist theology, uh, basically the remnant is used to describe an end time group of believers who are faithful to God. And even in one of our fundamental beliefs, so as Adventists, we have 28 fundamental beliefs. The 13th belief is called the remnant and its mission. And uh, I think it's really well stated in the fundamental belief. And so instead of me trying to butcher uh how we as a church believe it. Let me just read it to you. This is what it says. It says, The universal church is composed of all who truly believe in Christ. But in the last days, a time of widespread apostasy, a remnant has been called out to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This remnant announces the arrival of the judgment hour, proclaims salvation through Christ, and heralds the approach of his second advent. This proclamation is symbolized by the three angels of Revelation 14. It coincides with the work of judgment in heaven and results in a work of once and reform of on earth. Every believer is called to have a personal part in this worldwide witness. Now, uh, let me tell you a really funny story, actually. This is kind of uh, off topic. Um, but when I was growing up in my church in Alaska, uh, if you're unaware of the, the history of the church in Alaska, um, they you know, were meeting at the conference at one point. They were meeting at people's house. We didn't really have a church building for our own. Uh, and then uh, one of our pastors, the senior pastor at that time, uh, said you know, he had a dream and a vision that God wanted them to build a Korean church uh, uh, in Alaska. And so with that, uh, and they, with that determination and that, that, that vision from the senior pastor, uh, we had pushed through with building the church. Uh, fast forward, the church was built and, you know, the building is truly just a miracle from God. Um, but when it came to naming the church, uh, we actually uh, had agreed that we didn't want to be called the, the Korean church uh, only because we wanted to uh, be a church that was more of an international thing where we could reach out to the people of our community. We felt like being called the Korean church was a little too kind of you know, exclusive. Uh, and so we actually had come up with the name as a, as a church board that we would be called the Remnant SDA Church. Uh, now, uh, some of us may think like, oh, wow, that's great. Like, yeah, stay true to the Three Angels message and the Adventist belief. Uh, but it got shot down by the conference because if you didn't know, Remnant also kind of has this implication of leftovers. And so they were afraid that people would call us the leftover church and we didn't want that. But anyways, um, uh, back to the sermon. Uh, the most common verse uh, that we use to describe the Remnant is the Adventist church. Uh, and the traits of the Remnant is found in Revelation twelve seventeen. It says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keeps the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus uh, Christ. Now, while I believe this is great, uh, and I believe this, uh, the fundamental belief of the remnant and the ideal of the remnant is very powerful, I believe that there are very dangerous spots that we run into um, 
when it comes to this, this ideal of the remnant. Now, uh, within our denomination, sometimes there's this notion and this tendency of arrogance, right? To be filled with the sense of pride that we are the remnant. We are that group of people. We are the church that's being talked about in Revelation 12, 17, right? We are the ones that keep the commandments of God. We are the ones that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it, it becomes this very prideful, this very arrogant, like, look what we have and look what you don't have. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not here to attack the ideal of the remnant. I'm not here to attack the church or here to attack this fundamental belief. Um, but I want to be very clear, uh, being arrogant and this prideful fact that, that it is us that has the truth and only us that has the truth, I think that's a, a very dangerous thing. Um, and it really taints the image of what the real gospel message is about and uh, really what this end time message should be all about, right? Um, and this may be a reality for you, or maybe you know somebody, or maybe have experienced something like that, but I want to give you rest assured that we as a church are not promoting this ideal of arrogance, but you can see where this arrogance and pride comes from, right? Especially when you start thinking you have everything, right? So, um, you see, typically when we think about the remnant, uh, we have this tendency to imagine it as being something of a great honor, right? Something to have a lot of pride and honor in. And I think, yes, it's great to be considered the group of people who carry on that truth and have a mission to spread it. Uh, but there's a connotation of the remnant that we tend to forget. Uh, and this is something, a little bit of background about the remnant. But the key word found in our fundamental belief is that the remnant is called out. But it's called out of where? It's called out, as it says here, out of widespread apostasy. Now, apostasy, the last time I checked, was not a good thing, right? Uh, it's in the sense, it's talking about religious conflict. It's talking about religious turmoil, which in turn means it's talking about persecution, right? It means opposition to what you have and what you believe in. So, so being remnant, yes, is a great high honor because we carry the truth. But we also have to understand that the remnant is not necessarily green pastures and still waters, right? It means opposition. It means turmoil. It means struggle. Right? But despite the fact that now I've created this kind of disappointing fact of the remnant, um, I want you guys to still have hope in, in why we as a church uphold to this message that we are the remnant church and remnant people. Let me throw you a food example because I like talking about food. Uh, and maybe you're hungry. Uh, but let me give you an example that helps us see maybe the value of the remnant. Okay, So cold pizza. Um, or the leftovers of your Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, to be honest with you, like sometimes for me, like cold pizza tastes better than like actual hot pizza. Not saying that hot pizza is not good, but sometimes there's like something special about eating like cold pizza that's been put in the fridge or like Thanksgiving leftovers, right? There's something special about, about eating the Thanksgiving meal. Don't get me wrong. That's great and wonderful. It's the most delicious thing ever. But there's also like something really special about eating those leftovers. Like it's still good, right? Now, um, sometimes like those things, like that experience can never really be changed. Um, and the fact that like, sometimes those things are like taste better, or you have a better experience eating leftovers. Uh, it's not for the fact that like it's cold or like the fact that it's Thanksgiving, but it's for the fact that those leftovers, uh, remind you, or at least for me, remind me and kind of point me towards a time in which it was once hot.
Uh, maybe that's not for you. Maybe that's not the best example. Uh, but you see, this is the point, okay? We have to realize and understand that the remnant is actually something really special because it's the remnant that holds a special place in God's heart because he knows that the remnant is a reminder of the bigger picture of what God wants things to be like. It's through the work of the remnant, of those who keep the commandments of God, and uh, are true and faithful to the testimony and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and share that where this reality of what God originally intended and wanted can be obtained, right? It's through that in which the reality is achieved, okay? And I think that's really special because you see, it shows that God is still, is yet and still willing to use even a small group of people to work big things, right? And it's also a reminder to say that when we talk about the remnant and we think about the remnant, all it takes for God is a small group of people. All God needs is a remnant group, right? God doesn't need military powers. God doesn't need an unlimited supply of resource to accomplish any kind of tasks, right? The only thing God needs is a remnant, just a group of humble-hearted people who are willing to respond faithfully and obediently to the call of God. Now, I think this message of the remnant is powerful and something that we should always keep in mind. That despite the fact that we see the judgment of God falling upon the people, both for God and even for against God, God, all God needs to save and to leave this kind of hope for us is just the remnant. That's That's all that God needs. And that's a really powerful message. Now, the second thing that I would like to talk about today is uh, the purpose of God's judgment. Now, to simply put, the purpose of God's judgment is to bring people into this ideal of repentance. And I've talked about this over and over again. We talked about it in our Jonah series and a few other sermons that I've shared as well. Even recently, I've, I've just shared about it. So I'm not going to really talk about all the same things, uh, but I wanted to talk about a few other aspects of this ideal of repentance that kind of came to me as I was studying this and just looking into more of this ideal of God's judgment. So very clearly, just as I've stated before and earlier, God renders a judgment uh, to all peoples, right? Both of that of Judah and the neighboring nations of the north, south, east, and west. And we've seen this happen with the prophet Amos as well, right? He describes the sin of their neighbors and he's talking about the terrible things that they did. And he's like spiraling his way down to the center of it all, which is the very nation of Israel, as, as uh, humorous as that may be. Uh, but you can imagine with me, right? As the people are listening to the sins of others, there's got to be some kind of like self-reflection and maybe thought to their own sin, right? Especially after they've been put on blast. And now we're talking about Zephaniah. We're not talking about Amos, right? So God first relays a message of judgment to the people of Judah. So you can imagine, it's a, it's a big shock, right? And then they start hearing this judgment rendered to these other nations, right? Their neighbors. And so there's got to be some kind of like reflection going on here. I like to imagine that this is what's happening. And we see here uh, that in Zephaniah, God is, he starts with Judah, then moves to the neighbors, and then comes back to Judah. And we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, But, you know, I was really curious about this. And so I started to read a few commentaries about how people think that, um, uh, that there actually may be some possible motivations that arise uh, for repentance uh, to Judah uh, or for Judah uh, in light of the judgment that their neighbors are getting. And I think this is actually really interesting. And so let me just kind of uh, summarize and tell you what um, those possible motivations uh, for Judah could be. 
The first could be that because of God's judgment upon the neighbors, Judah would realize that um, God's punishment is, is going to be for everyone, right? That there's no escape for even them, right? Just because God punishes them doesn't mean he's going to punish uh, doesn't mean that he's not going to punish them, right? So this could be motivation for them to be like, oh, maybe we got to repent. Like this is, uh, we made a mistake. Like God's going to punish them too. Then God definitely is going to punish me, right? Uh, the second thing would be uh, because if they saw the judgment of their neighbors, it could be actually a blessing to them, right? Because now it's kind of their cue to like get their act together and like, oh shoot, like God is being serious now, you guys. Like maybe we need to get things together, right? Uh, a funny example that I can think of that uh, I wasn't going to share, but I will share. Uh, when I was younger, as a, uh, as a you know, uh, the second son uh, or the second child of, of six, um, sometimes it was really funny to see how, you know, sometimes if I got in trouble or my older sister or one of my younger sisters got in trouble, but the youngest or the second youngest would see that and it would be their cue to be like, oh, uh, I should not mess up like i should get my act together and maybe if you're a sibling you realize that too you see the oldest one get in trouble and you're just like yeah that's not going to be me like i'm not doing that right and so you learn from their mistakes um but anyways the third thing that this commentary or a commentary mentioned and this is something that we're kind of, i'm kind of alluding to for next week and we'll talk more in depth next week about but it, it could be that the repentance of a non-jewish country a country that isn't for god but against god uh could be this kind of like jealousy that kind of stirs up inside of the people of Judah because God is rendering a judgment. And as we know, judgment is an expression of God's love. And so it could be like, man, like, like if God is like telling them that, that God loves them too, but like, let's get our act together. Right. So hopefully you see, and I think that's really interesting to think of it that way. Uh, now, anyways, I think this all could be really possible. Uh, if not uh, the reality uh, we have to think about. And like, the question that comes to my mind is like, why in the world would the biblical authors and even the prophets uh, include this in the Bible, right? Why would they include this kind of punishment towards uh, not just Judah, but to the neighbors, the people that don't even believe in God? Like, why does it even matter to them? Why would God include such a message to those who probably could care less about God's judgment? So, and this is the thing, this is the takeaway take for me on this, is I think that God is showing that he himself is a very intentional God, right? And he uses these things as a lesson for his own people, but also, and even more importantly, that these things reveal his ultimate true character, right? In the sense that salvation is not just for some, not just for the remnant, but for all, right? And that's so powerful. And that's something that maybe we don't really realize because we're in the position of, oh, we're God's people and we, we see ourselves as that, right? So sometimes we don't think that, oh, well, God is not just the God for me. God is God for my, my pagan neighbors. God is the God for my atheist, my friends. Like God is God for everyone. And I think that's so beautiful. Now, okay, so you might be thinking, Pastor, all right, what's the deal on repentance then? Like, okay, what's, what's going on, right? So we get that the purpose of God's judgment is to lead us into this ideal of repentance, but what does that mean, right? Now, uh, this is what it means, okay? The opportunity for repentance uh, that would lead to restoration is a biblical picture of God's way for handling sin. You see, Judah had the opportunity to acknowledge that sin was alive in their lives. They, had, they were filled with sin. They were dealing with all these issues. And if they had followed through and uh, acknowledged that, then God's promise was to restore them. 
right? And I think even more so now, this, this, this is so much more relevant to us today, right? The stories of the Old Testament are filled with all these examples of God's mercy and grace being exercised and extended and poured out into the lives of people. And, it's, and, and sometimes like that mercy and grace is against their will, uh, but, or with, not against their will, but against their, their request or their longing for it. But more times than not, we find that the biblical images um, of, of people uh, that, that receive this mercy and grace are those who turn to God in active trust, right? To acknowledge that and turn to God. However, in the same way, uh, that same mercy and grace uh, will fall on those who repent, right? Uh, and trust in God. And if not, His wrath is promised to those uh, that fail to do so. Now, the Old Testament kind of lays down uh, the foundation uh, for uh, the judgment that Jesus promised us all. And we're, and we're referring to the second coming and the end times uh, for both those that do accept him and those that do not. Now, have you thought about it? Just like in the Bible, or those in the Bible, there were opportunity after opportunity for people to acknowledge that sin was just rampant and real in their lives. Many times. And all they needed to do was to acknowledge that. To acknowledge the fact that they were filled with sin. That they were living in a life of sin. And, and, and all they had to do was acknowledge and turn to Him and receive restoration. And I think one of the most important steps, and I think uh, actually the most key and fundamental step uh, and cornerstone in this journey of repentance is this ideal of acknowledgement. Okay? And if you don't know what's wrong, okay, hear me out. If you don't know what's wrong, then you can't repent. That's the reality. Right? You must acknowledge what's wrong in order for you to fall on your knees and to bring your broken selves to the cross. You see, when we look at the message of Jesus, we find time after time again that Jesus and his disciples really emphasize this ideal of repentance. Right? That's really a big theme of what Jesus' ministry was all about, was to lead people into repentance, to turn from their ways and to turn to God. Um, so opposite of things like personal gain and whatnot, uh, Jesus and the disciples have this demand and this calling uh, for people to repent. And, and, and this is it, right? It's here when God has this calling for his people that it stops them from thinking about the things that they can obtain, this I mentality, right? And makes them intentionally focus on the condition in which they live in. Right? And that's the beginning of, of self-awareness or acknowledgement, right? That this ideal of, hey, like, I'm not okay. Like, there's something wrong, like, very wrong with me, okay? And I'm not right with God, and I really need to change. And you see that, you know, this is obviously a theme, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like, this was that very problem, right? They didn't see anything wrong with themselves. They didn't see anything wrong with these weird laws, rules, and regulations. So the message of repentance literally just went over their head. They had no idea, right? And sometimes we need to look at the things that, that, that drive us in life, right? To reevaluate and to examine these things uh, to see if they really are unhealthy or even destructive to us in our walk with Christ. You see, some of us may think that having possessions, having these powers and these accolades, achievements, and a lot of these things justify like why we feel this empty, emptiness that's within us. But the reality is, is that they don't, right? Um, let me tell you a story. Uh, Tom, uh, uh, I don't know how to say his last name. Uh, Monoghan. Uh, I want to say that's his last name, but I could be wrong. Anyways, he's the founder of Domino's Pizza. 
Uh, I don't know. I like Domino's. But anyways, uh, Tom Monoghan, uh, who is the founder and actually is no longer an owner of Domino's Pizza, shared at one time in his life uh, in an interview that his drive and his desire in life was to have more than anyone else and to succeed more than the people around him. But then when he found out how prideful his heart had become uh, and how miserable that attitude was making him, he decided to change everything about his life. Right. He started to live a simple lifestyle. He started selling off all his like, you know, collector vehicles and, and all these like material possessions. And he started to live the standard of modest living. And then he committed to giving away everything else uh, to the work of the church. Uh, and we see if you, you want to look him up, he, he was a, a practicing. He had like this revival in like 1992 uh, as a Catholic and like it really radically changed his life. He like started selling everything and getting rid of everything. And he sold like all his like shares to like some other company. And he started giving away the rest to like make funds. And, and, and it's just incredible to see that, that change where he thought he had everything. And then he reflected and realized that this is the worst thing ever and, and let it all go. Now, um, there's actually a time in my life where uh, I wanted to be a dentist. And so obviously the route to go was to work at a dental office. And so actually in Alaska, I worked as a dental assistant for a few years. Um, and, you know, I had no interest in the medical field before. But then when I saw how, like, how easy it was to make money living the life of a dentist and seeing the lifestyle of a dentist, it gave me the motivation and the passion and the desire to be like, hey, like, I can like pull out someone's tooth and make this much money. Like I'm going to do this. Right. And this was the motivation. Like I thought I could make lots of money. I was super excited about it. But in the midst and in that, that desire and passion, that drive that had pushed me that direction, uh, I started to distance myself from family, from friends, my relationship and my spiritual walk with God. Like all these other things started to, to clutter my life and my vision. And it got to the point where I said, you know what? Like, this is not it. Like, this is really destructive for me, and I, I don't think I can do this, right? Um, now, today, to close, uh, and hopefully those examples kind of give you a, a better ideal of this ideal of acknowledgement, let me go ahead and share with you uh, a story that kind of helps, or this analogy that kind of helps people understand their need for God and salvation, and kind of the whole purpose and point of like this, this, this thing of repentance. Now, imagine with me that you're walking on a bridge, and let's say this bridge is spanning the length of the Niagara Falls. Um, and let's just say that you're walking on this like wooden bridge, you know, you can imagine with me like ropes and wood, very unsafe. Uh, but imagine you're walking on this bridge and as you're walking across this bridge, Jesus comes along and joins you on this walk. And you're walking along the bridge and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus says, hey, like, I'm going to help you. Like, I got you. Like, I'll save you. Don't worry. You'll be fine. Right. Now, if you're walking on that bridge and you heard that, you would be like, Jesus, like, come again. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean by that? Like, what? I'm OK. Like, I don't need your help. But let's, let's rewind the story and let's think about it one more time, okay? Let's just say you're walking on that bridge with Jesus, okay? And you're just having a lovey-dovey conversation with him. And then all of a sudden, you uh, are distracted by your conversation and you misstep and you fall into the Niagara Falls, right? And you, you're like, ah, and you fall down and you're now you're in the water and you're like drowning and you like, you know, the waters are like, like pounding on you and you just like are struggling to get a breath of air. And as you lunge up for, for a little breath of air, you hear Jesus say, hey, like, I'll help you. I got you. Like, I'll save you. Don't worry. I'm here. And Jesus jumps in. 
right, after you. Now, everything changes, right? The scenario, because of the scenarios, change. You see, this is the message. That when it comes to repentance, this message of God's judgment, this message of hope for us today is only understood when we realize and we see ourselves drowning in our sin. When we acknowledge the very fact that we are not currently walking on that bridge with Jesus, but we're in the waters drowning with the waters pounding and beating against us, that's the only time that this message of hope makes sense. When we see ourselves uh, in this situation of, of we're completely engulfed in our sin, when we see ourselves with our lives just not together, when we see ourselves when our lives are, are, are focused on ourselves and not on God, you see, this is when we really need Jesus, right? Of course, if things are fine and you, you don't realize or see the brokenness and the sin of your lives, then of course, like what Jesus says to you doesn't matter. Salvation is not going to mean anything. But this is the reality. We are all drowning in our sin. We are all down in the waters as the water is pounding and beating us down and taking our life away. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need salvation. This is why we need repentance. And this is why we need to acknowledge the current state in which we are all in. And this is why we need to repent or respond to this message of, of judgment and repentance. To repent so that we can be restored with Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, church, I want to challenge you today as I wrap up now. As we see this message of God through the prophet Zephaniah, of this, of this judgment, of repentance. Let us remember that God is calling out for us. God is extending His hand and reaching out to you and I. He's wanting us to realize and acknowledge that we are drowning in our sin, that we are broken and we are hurting. And Jesus is the only thing that can save us. I pray that this lesson of Zephaniah to remind us of the importance and the power and the purpose of God's judgment and repentance so that we can respond to that rescue call that Jesus throws out to us for you and I. Let's pray.